You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to our second episode. Today, we're really lucky to be chatting with the retired detective Chief Inspector Gary Raymond. Gary has an Order of Australia medal and an Australian Police Medal, among many other awards and achievements. He's a member of the Salvation Army, and his life has been an amazing journey from the very beginning. Gary talks really candidly about his faith in Jesus and how that's integrated with his work. In Gary's 10 years in police rescue, he was involved with 1,500 rescues, including 1,000 car crash extrications, around 200 suicide crisis negotiations, and 200 vertical rescues. This was followed by 10 years as a police detective. These days, Gary keeps very busy by being a chaplain to the police post-trauma support groups, doing public speaking, and running workshops in suicide awareness, prevention, crisis negotiation, and postvention. You can find Gary on Facebook and Twitter, at Gary Raymond, He also has two books out, Top Cop and Top Cop 2 on the beat, and those are available at Kurong Bookstore. I'd like to caution listeners that there are some very heavy themes and at moments there are some graphic details in this episode. So a warning to listeners, this episode contains suicide, rape, crime and trauma themes. If this raises any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Here's my conversation with Gary Raymond. Yeah, I was born in Newcastle, which is just north of Sydney, and my mum and dad lived in New Lambton, but I was born in the Mata Hospital there at Waratah and, uh, on the 13th of December 1950. And um, I was actually, um, my mum and dad met at a dance, and uh, my dad was a returned soldier, and that, that night she became pregnant with me. And so it was a bit of a panic. And she actually um, didn't know what to do. She came from a fairly um, middle-class immigrant family from, from the UK. And her mum was a, an Anglican who went to church regularly. And, uh, and so when she got pregnant, you know, to my dad, she just went into a flat spin and a panic. Right. And uh, she actually thought the only way out of this is to have an abortion is to terminate the pregnancy. Yeah. And so she went to a bank manager and told a lie. She said, I need some money to buy a push bike to go to work. And I said, that's, that's a good loan, that's fine. So I gave her the money, but the money was actually to abort me. So she went to a, a clinic in Cooks Hill and um, paid the money and booked in. And she said she was in the waiting room and looking around, these other women there and... Uh, this huge big nursing sister was sort of getting things ready and um, she had a list on the wall of all the ladies' names that were there in, in the waiting room and as each lady went in, she'd crossed the name off the list. So she came down to my mum and my mum told me that she was had a very cranky disposition and she said, um, uh, Miss Beryl Harris... Miss Harris, like really emphasising, yeah. uh, come on, Missy, you know, you got yourself pregnant, your yeah. turn to come in. So mum said she got up and she started to walk into the clinical area 
where they performed the abortions. And as she looked in, she saw a doctor and a nurse and they were dressed in this green drab sort of operating theatre colour and um, they had masks on and she said she looked at the doctor and he had these what she described as scary evil eyes and then she felt this overwhelming feeling, don't go in there and do this, don't kill this child and so... Then she turned around, didn't collect her money or anything, no money back, and ran. And she said she went into a local park and hid behind a hedge crying for most of the day so that no one could see her. Mm -hmm. Then she finally made her way home, went straight into her room and after a while her mother, my grandmother, was asking, you know, what's wrong? And she wouldn't tell her and finally she broke the ice and told her, well, Apparently it was World War Three. Oh, no. Oh, it was on for young and old, you know. And, uh, yeah. uh, of course, Grandma was very upset and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what, don't let the neighbours find out. Don't let anyone find out if this is a shame. No one at the church. Uh, it was a shameful thing in those days for that to happen. And uh, mm. so finally um, she told Grandma what she was going to do but didn't do. And Grandma said, look, there's only one way out of this. We'll send you into the country and I'll just tell everyone that you're working in the country. But have this baby and then uh, adopt the baby out and come back and no one will ever know the difference. And then she paused and she said, or find the father. What's he going to do about this? And so my mum went searching and found my dad and uh, told him. And you know what? I I honour my dad without a moment's hesitation, not a second's hesitation when mum told him that she said oh, I'm having a baby he said oh well, I'll have to marry you so that this child has its mum and dad well they were married within about a fortnight or so wow <laughs> <laughs> a real shotgun wedding you know but as of course everyone knew then there was something um something in a hurry mm-hmm. and so they got married and um but I guess uh, early in the piece I was born in the December and um because my dad was a storm and there wasn't much money in the household and we were living in, uh, in my nana's house, that's dad's mum's house, and was, um, then my brother was born after me. And then, well, sorry, after me they decided to have a girl. Then Neil was born. <laughs> oh, we'll have a girl for sure. Kevin was born. <laughs> hey, we're going to have a girl. Trevor was born. <laughs> we're going to have a girl this time. Brian was born. Wow. So here we are with five boys. And that was it. And that was a give up now, let's not <laughs> do this. And so yeah. that sort of um, was a, a fairly busy household with um, Nana living there, although she used to go to Auntie Shirls every now and then and um, all backwards and forwards. So it was a pretty uh, hectic household there for a while. Yeah. Um, and when did your parents tell you the story of your birth? Um, it wasn't until um, I'd left home. I left mm. home when I was 16 uh, to come to Sydney to actually do a cadetship with the New mm. South Wales Ambulance Service, which I did, trained at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, then uh, went on to uh, work on the ambulances there for, in the city of Sydney. But it was during, um, you know, I came home and we were talking and I said, um, uh, you know, just as a bit of a laugh, we are talking about um, where people are conceived and I said, where was I conceived? She said, on Stockton Beach. <laughs> right. Oh, great, okay. And, uh, and then she told me the story. Yeah. 
right. uh, which is amazing. But um, that wasn't the end of it. It's quite interesting that my mother saved my life by walking out of that clinic. Yeah. But things got really quite, I guess it was because of no money, um, living in a crammed, fairly, you know, crammed conditions, um, having to share the kitchen with, with Nana Raymond wasn't easy. And so my mother got a bit cranky and depressed about the conditions in which we lived. Mm. And she, she started, that depression got so bad. Now, at the same time, we know now that uh, my father was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because he was a, uh, a soldier in World War II, went to New Guinea, and then to Moratai, which is in Indonesia. Mm. So he came back traumatised like most of them did because of the things they saw and did. That depression, he was um, uh, drinking a bit with his mates during, you know, playing cricket, after cricket. He was going to the races and spending money there on the dogs and trots mainly, the trotting horses. Mm. And so things things were getting very uncomfortable. There was some shouting matches between mum and dad, no violence, but shouting matches and disagreements. And it got to the stage where my mother got that depressed. She actually plotted and planned a murder-suicide. Wow. Yeah, she uh, told me all about it. She said she actually planned on killing herself and the five of us. She thought that things weren't going to improve and suicidal people do this sometimes. They think that um, by escaping life themselves and taking people with them, it's sort of almost doing them all a favour, which is not obviously. Yeah. So she actually started to seriously plan a murder-suicide. She went up to the doctor, Dr Murphy was the local GP, and, and pretended she couldn't sleep. So he gave her some sleeping tablets. And they weren't for her. In this plan, it was to put into orange cordial, put us to sleep and then turn the gas on. Mm. That was the plan. And uh, she got everything ready. She even put a little X, she told me, on a calendar, which is going to be a Sunday morning when my dad was playing cricket with his mates. He played cricket with the waterboard. And so... Um, in the meantime, we got a knock on the door and it was Lieutenant Gwen Fisher from the Salvation Army. She was starting a Sunday school up the road and she asked, she said, oh, Mrs Raymond, do you want to send your boys up there? Yeah, send them all up. So we started going to Sunday school and I'll never forget, the Sunday school teacher said on the first time, uh, boys and girls, Jesus loves you. Well, I nearly fell off the chair because... Any time I heard about that name Jesus in our house then was when there was argument or or insults or, or um, you know, telling us what to do in a cranky mannerism. And yeah. So I got a surprise too to think, well, Jesus, what? wow, it's not the one I've heard about <laughs> in, the, in the home. And then it was interesting that because I've got four brothers, I started acting out a bit because there's girls there. So it's all attention-seeking, you know, look at me, look at me, and I was being mischievous. The Sunday school teacher said to me, get out, sit on the front step, do not move, and then she'd let all the other kids go out five minutes early, call me in and give me a one-on-one lesson. And how old were you? I was only, um, 
oh, probably about um, nine or eight or nine, somewhere okay. around there. Yeah. So I was, you know, just at that age where I was showing off and look at me, look at me as I mentioned. But this Sunday school teacher, her name was um, Doreen Buttery or her nickname was Tops. Oh, and she actually gave me the gospel one-on-one during that time that she called me back in. So I learnt what the gospel was, uh, you know, about Jesus dying for me, being buried, actually buried in three days, rising from the dead and uh, being God, you know, God the Son, uh, according to the scriptures. And I thought, what? And it was amazing to hear that news for me. So I remember at a young age believing and, mm. and just believing what he did. Wow. So the Sunday school had a... Uh, church anniversary, the whole church had an anniversary where everybody came along to celebrate. And that was on a Saturday night before the Sunday morning she was going to kill us all myself. My mother actually came along that night to church. And she said to me, I went along to see you boys smile for the last time. She said, because I knew the next morning you were going to die and so was I. So an interesting thing she said, I knew you, you boys would be going to heaven and I'd be going to hell. Yeah. It's quite amazing. She was so in such a depressive state. Mm-hmm. She was quite willing to go to hell, you know. And um, at that meeting we did our anniversary, you know, songs and music and drama and, and things the kids do and, and the adults do too. There's a fellow called Brigadier Spillett was the MC that night. He got up and he said, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had a great night tonight. God's been glorified. We've heard about what Jesus did for us. And he said, but my heart's really heavy. He said, God, the Holy Spirit has told me deep down in my heart, there is someone here that needs Jesus and needs him now. You need two things. You need number one to know that your sin has already been forgiven on the cross. And number two, you need your hurts healed by him, by the Holy Spirit. And uh, my mother said, oh, yeah. When he said that, I thought, well, that's that's nice. That's that's nice. He's sitting there. (laughs) And um, next minute, Brigadier Spillett said, ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Spirit has just told me deep down in my heart, whoever you are, you need to come to Jesus tonight Tomorrow will be too late for you and some others. It has to be tonight. Wow. Tomorrow will be too late. And my mother said she was startled. She said that she hadn't shared a plan of murder-suicide with anybody. And she knew that when the brigadier said that, this was God speaking to her directly through him. And she got up, folded up a light overcoat she had, put it on the chair and screaming and crying, ran forward and fell at the front of the church there, the Salvation Army Hall at Lampton. And a lot of women went forward and surrounded her and prayed with her and they're stroking her hair and her back and comforting her. And, and uh, yeah, I was, we were sitting on the platform and I was looking down at my mum wondering what was happening, seeing her crying and, I mean, not just normal crying, that bellowing, yeah. you know, that deep sort of guttural bellowing, crying. And and then two of the Salvation Army blokes, uh, Len and Ted Randall, came up and said, it's okay, boys, mummy's all right. 
she's just um, talking to Jesus, you know. So that comforted us to know that she was okay. When when that finished, <laughs> uh, Brigadier Spillett said, now, look, we're not here to exhibit anybody. We're not, you know, we're not here to show off. But if you wanted to tell us why you came forward tonight, Mrs Raymond, you can. You don't have to. Mm. Please don't feel obliged, only if you want to. And she said, well, tomorrow morning I was going to kill myself and murder my five sons. They must and have And you been should have seen. Shot. Yeah, look, Fairingham, the, you could hear this... Uh, Ooh, right through the place, you know. Yeah. And she said, but I've just met with Jesus and he's going to save us. That's beautiful. Yeah. So uh, they had a big celebration. What they call in the Sally's a hallelujah wind-up where <laughs> people um, just walk around a circle and they were singing a beautiful song called um, Oh Boundless Salvation, you know, and it's a good old song that talks about uh, how wonderful it is to be saved. Then, of course, they, everyone had a cup of tea and supper, as they do, and we went home to bed. Next morning, um, I thought, oh, you know, what's going to happen now? Wow. Dad got up. He was fairly um, fairly hungover from the cricket and his mates at the pub. And my mum said, uh, Jack, I want to tell you what I was going to do today. And uh, he said, um, What? And she brought out the pills and she'd rolled towels up with sticky tape to put in the door jams so that the gas couldn't escape. And she had a little note written for the forensic police that found all the bodies. And uh, and so she showed him all that. She said, today I was going to kill myself and all of your boys. She said, but last night at the Salvation Army, I surrendered my life to Jesus and you should do the same. And uh, my dad was quite upset and he said did it get to this Beryl and she she said well it did but not now this household this family our lives are going to change and um, it did magnificent change and uh, it was just stunning to see the change and even the neighbours noticed Uh, Mrs Walker down the back said to me is everything all right there Gary I said yes Mrs Walker she said oh I don't hear any yelling and swearing up there anymore I said, I know Mrs Walker, uh, you know, my mum and, 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 and dad have found Jesus and, you know, things are improving. And and she said, wow, I've been praying for you for a long time. She was a, a lovely lady there. But uh, So that's sort of our whole family changed, started regularly going to church at the mm. army. My mum learnt the guitar. She got involved in women's ministries, children's ministries. She was... Um, you know, leading Sunday school. She was doing what they call the Home League, which is a, the women's group, you know, and uh, just motoring on. And uh, my dad supported. Uh, he wasn't as active in the church, but he supported all of us going through there. So, uh, yeah, so that was a shaky start. but Yeah, it's incredible. The interesting thing about that was that I was an ambulance officer Okay. And then a police officer, mm. and then doing all those things uh, over the years, amazing things. When my may not have happened if my mother had taken my life back there in the abortion clinic. Yeah. So I praise God that He touched my mum's heart. She obeyed, even though she didn't know what was happening then. But later she did. She knew the Holy Spirit was telling her, "Don't kill this baby," you know. And that's an interesting point too because 
as a police officer, people say to you, uh, you know, why does God allow all this hurt in the world? Why is there bloodshed? Why is there suffering? Why is there killing? Why is there crime? I say, well, you read in, in the scriptures many times where God, through his Holy Spirit, says to people, don't do that. Yeah. Or do this, uh, don't go there or go there. They disobey him and their consequence is suffering. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And do you think those events early in your life inspired you to take their path as an ambulance officer and police officer? Yeah, when I was, um, <clears throat> when I was about eight or nine, I joined the St John Ambulance as a cadet. So uh, we used to work with an experienced person at the football or carnivals or um, shows and things like that where, you know, we'd go and render first aid. It's quite funny because uh, my reputation got known around the neighbourhood and when there was a a little catastrophe around the place, they'd say, quick, quick, get Gary, you know, (laughs) because even though I was only a boy, I had a first aid kit and, uh, you know, I knew what I was doing even at that age. And cool. Around, we had a notorious corner down on Hobart Road and Wallara Road at New Lambton. It was a teeny section. There was a lot of crashes there. Mm. Um, one, one sort of approach was going downhill and drivers used to just come to the intersection, have a quick glance and keep going and, and a car coming around the bend would, would hit them. So we'd hear the big crash. Mm. My mother even had uh, a couple of blankets and towels rolled up behind a bedroom door and I'd grab my first aid kit and Mum and I would run down there. And there was one there one evening, a FJ Holden had a crash and there was no seatbelts in those days. Yeah. And the driver was catapulted out of it head first onto the road. Oh, dear. And he had what we call a fractured base of the skull. He was bleeding from the ears, nose and mouth, a serious injury. Mm. And one of the most important things there is to make sure the airways are open. So if they're on their back, they can actually gurgle and choke or inhale um, blood or vomit. Just sounds good, doesn't it? Into <laughs> there, you know, that's good for the listeners to hearing all this. But, <laughs> and so what I did was um, I got a few of the neighbours and we uh, keeping his spine spinal column straight, mm. we log-rolled him so that he was his airways were draining and you, you log-roll him onto the bleeding ear side because he had blood coming from an ear as well. Mm. Just drainage, in other words. And the ambulance turned up from Hamilton and the two officers got out and they looked around and checked this bloke out and they looked around and said, oh, who's been treating this gentleman? And they said, oh, that boy there. He said, oh, son, you've saved his life. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, who are you? I said, oh, I'm with the St John Ambulance. And they said, ah, right. Um, and then he said to me, listen, um, uh, I'm on tomorrow afternoon. Come down to the ambulance station in Hamilton. I'll show you around. Mm. So I got my push bike and went down there and they showed me around and I just, uh, I knew then this is what I needed to do and wanted to do. And I remember in school too, in the New Lampton Primary, even the, Young before I went into there, I had this urge to um, to help people who were injured. Uh, when I was four in a bus, I saw a bloke on, off a motorbike and I was watching my mum chastise me, get away and don't watch. Mm. But 
I snuck up the back and watched all these police and ambulance officers working. So age four, yeah. uh, you know, even that that age, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I've been in class in primary school and there's a crash and I sort of wanted to get up and help and the teacher had to really chastise me and say, no, stay where you are and say, well, I can help till the ambulance gets there, you know, and she'd say, you stay where you are. So, you know, even then I had that desire to to go and respond to help injured and sick people. But, yeah, so that's how it sort of started and then I um, was going to join the Navy but the... Uh, ambulance service cadetship came. So age 16, I came down to Sydney and did training with the ambulance service, and that included doing autopsies to learn anatomy and mm. uh, doing the, the nurses' school. We did that. We did uh, medical, you know, anatomy, physiology. I, I worked in the emergency department, theatres, other places, and then finally after two years training, that was at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, I was actually in charge of a trauma ambulance aged 18. Wow. Working out <laughs> of the city of Sydney, covering Darlinghurst, King's Cross, Redfern, the city, um, you know, the Harbour Bridge um, and all of those, uh, the early parts of Newtown. And uh, and so I gained, gained a lot of experience. But uh, And they, I was doing some relieving at Bondi and... Along the coast there, people get trapped on the cliffs and uh, we got a call. Uh, we had to go all the way to North Head where there was an injured fisherman with a broken back. And Sergeant Ray Tyson, the, the late Sergeant Ray Tyson, said to me, listen, um, could you help my blokes? This bloke's got a definite fractured spine. Could you help them? And so I went down the cliffs and packaged up the patients, we call it, to make them immobilised so that the spinal column doesn't move and so on. And I came back up the cliffs with the police rescue. And I did that a few times along the coast. And he said to me one day, he said, man, if you leave the embers, you can come and join us. So I thought, wow, you know, I was only 21. And I thought, this is action stations. <laughs> and so I left the ambulance and uh, went into the New South Wales Police. Wow. Mm. Very yeah. interesting. And you went on to be a detective. Yeah, I did um, 10 years. Uh, well, firstly, it was quite funny when we graduated from the academy. And keep in mind, police rescue at that time were at Redfern mm-hmm. at the academy stationed there. And uh, we're getting our appointments, our stations. And the sergeant came up to me and he said, Raymond, yes, Sarge, you're going to Redfern. I said, oh, rescue squad. He said, no, general duties. And so what happened was um, then I went to general duties and uh, I had to do that for a year around Redfern, which is a rough old patch. And then I went into police rescue. Now, I ended up in police rescue for 10 years and the records show there that I did over, I think it was, yeah, they said uh, 1,500 rescues. A 1,000 of those were car crash extrications, you know, and the only reason they ever called police rescue as if people are trapped within the vehicles. And so um, then I did 200-odd vertical rescues, did plenty of missions on the helicopter, and also about 200 suicide crisis negotiations. And we we specialised to people threatening to jump off buildings, bridges, towers, whatever. Yeah, and then after 10 years I then went to the detectives 
and uh, which is an interesting change. Like mm. police rescue is all go, 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 lights and sirens, quick, 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 whereas detectives is slow and steady, don't miss anything. Even the slightest detail could break the case. And so it was slow and methodical and, you know, take your time. And, uh, yeah, so it was a big uh, paradigm shift between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And with the rescue work that you did, were there any moments or incidents that really stand out for you even now? There was a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah, there's heaps of them. But I think the biggest one, of course, was uh, on the 18th of January 1977 was the Granville train disaster. And just to refresh people's memories, uh, a train left the Blue Mountains, Mount Victoria, came down and when it got to the Granville Bend, um, it left the tracks, it derailed, the wheels were worn down, the tracks were worn down and there were some mechanical issues and you know with the wheels as well right. and it jumped off the tracks and derailed. As it was uh, screaming along on its side, it wiped out the staunchion supports on the Bold Street Bridge at Granville. Wow. So it came to rest and... Uh, 30 to 40 seconds later, the bridge broke its back and came down squarely on the train. Now, carriage one got through, but the staunch ripped it right open. It was on its side. The, the roof, people were actually on the roof of the train, which had been torn off, and many were killed and injured in carriage one. Carriage two slipped under the bridge without a scratch. But when it derailed and came to a stop, then the bridge fell on carriages three and four. Um, I was with the late Sergeant Bill Fay, and when we turned up there, we looked over the culvert and we saw 213 people injured. But Sergeant Fay turned around and he said, Gaz, don't worry about them. He said, the doctors, nurses and ambos will look after them. He said, get in underneath that bridge into those carriages and tell me what we've got. Now, that's called a reconnaissance where you go in and you, you look for who, who's, who died, who's living, who's trapped and who's not. So I crawled in there and um, there was 80 people died instantly when the bridge came down. Wow. Yeah, 80. Yes, I got in and I was crawling through all those, um, through the middle of those who lost their lives and... Uh, trying to find those who are alive. And there was an ambulance officer just beside me as well crawling through and um, we developed this little system where uh, we thumbs up, this person's alive, or thumbs down, sorry, this one isn't. Mm. And uh, as we're going through, we came across a young lady called Debbie Scow. She was 19, beautiful-looking, tall, blonde lady with uh, lovely brown eyes. She was a public servant with the police force but she'd been accepted to go into the police academy later on that year to become a police officer. Now, she was standing in the vestibule of the carriage and it pushed her over and sort of folded her into a ball and her face was actually pushed down on her chest mm-hmm. and she was trapped there. And uh, so the Ambo felt, you know, and said, sorry, mate, and thumbs down. In other words, she's passed away. I always double-check. Being a cop, you always double-check things. It's um, your cross-check, in other words. And so I checked and 
oh, much to my surprise, she had a pulse, very rapid feeble pulse, uh, but she'd stopped breathing because of the airway obstruction. So I knew what I had to do straight away without delay, and that was to straighten her airway up. Mm. And so I sort of was lying uh, bes- beside her and, and I got ahead and, and I just gripped my teeth and I started, you know, I just said, Lord, please help me here, God, please help me, you know. And I put her head into traction and opened, um, just bent her head around in the curvature of the cervical spine, the neck spine, lifted her jaw forward and so I knew it was a danger that I might even cause damage to a spinal cord doing that, but she's not breathing, so you have to do it. It's you weigh up the risk. Yeah. And so, but I kept traction on it to minimise any danger or damage that might have been there. And you know, people say to you as a police officer or EMBO nurses or or fireys, whatever, oh, you must see some terrible things in your job. Well, not all the time. You don't really. It's occasionally you do. But no one ever says to you, oh, you must smell some horrible smells or the sounds or even the silences because as a cop when you go somewhere where there should be noise and sounds and there isn't, like a car overturned with four teenage kids in it should be noisy but they've lost their lives. So the silence can be deafening. There's the things you touch even with surgical gloves on and things that touch you and you can add to that too with police people try to kill you and hurt you. So that's called the sensory stimuli and um, that has an impact on, on officers and uh, can cause post-traumatic stress disorder flashbacks. But anyway, one of the most beautiful sounds that I've ever heard in my entire police life was oh, oh, oh. as I opened Debbie's airway, she suddenly started to breathe again wow. on her own. I'm glad she did because I couldn't get around to give her any mouth-to-mouth, uh, you know, resuscitation at all in the yeah. position she was trapped in, but I just had enough to open her airway. And I held that open and she started breathing. Her colour got better. She's looking around confused. Her eyes are sort of rolling in her head. And she said later she thought a jet liner had crashed onto the train. That's what her perception was, but it was the bridge came down. Yeah. And so um, then started uh, a massive rescue effort for Debbie and uh, a heap of, you know, another nine-odd people trapped within there. And people might have or might not have heard of the crush syndrome. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, the crush syndrome is where the skeletal muscle, the muscles on, on the legs in particular, get compressed. And if the person's there for any length of time, toxins build up in the tissues. I'll I'll make it simple. Mm. And then if you release them too quickly, those toxins can rush up into the body, cause the heart to go into funny rhythms and block up the kidneys and cause havoc really. And also once you release that pressure, blood then can go and be lost into that area. So when they've got the crush syndrome, we have to very carefully stabilise them with the medics and then release them very, very slowly, a little bit at a time. So that's why it takes time. But but we got um, Debbie out. It took us about nine to ten hours to get them all out. She was one of the last. And uh, off she went to hospital. She was... uh, 
And, and by the way, I noticed too that one of her legs was critically injured. She later lost that leg oh. and she's got a prosthesis today. She, uh, yeah. Did she get to join the police for? No, unfortunately she had a head injury, mm. chest injuries, leg injuries. She lost a leg. Yeah. Yeah, so she had a prosthesis, Laura, yeah. you know, a plastic leg if you like. And uh, so she couldn't join the police, no. And she was, she's um, got some disability. She gets around on a walking frame now. But, mm-hmm. but that's another amazing thing. Uh, through the rescue, um, we smelt, it was early in the rescue, we smelled a smell. And I thought, I know that smell liquid petroleum gas. Oh, no. I thought, oh, no, a spark and we're going to blow up. I thought, where's the gas from? I couldn't work it out. And we found out later that the carriages carry gas cylinders in a little cupboard at the end of the carriage mm. to light the heaters during during winter. You know those old gas heaters that used to be on the end of the carriages? Okay. You might not remember that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so they left the cylinders in the train during the summer, which is fine, locked in a cupboard at the end of the carriage. When the bridge came down, it crushed all the cylinders and gas were pouring out and I yelled out, you know, no one light a a match or don't put a torch on or, you know, because sometimes people trapped in a dark place want to light something up to see where they are. Yeah. And even our torches, um, the ones we had at at that time, were not gas proof Mm. and so we couldn't use them. They caused a spark with the globes warming up and things like that. We couldn't use motors to run our hydraulic rescue equipment. So we were left with a pocket knife in our bare hands. But again, thank God, the guys from the fire brigade got a big um, foam generator fan and it runs on water. You put a hose on the top of it and it spins the blades, the water spins the blades and it evacuated all the gas out of there and then we were able to use our motorised rescue gear. Wow. So this went on and on and on and um, around halfway during the rescue or so, um, Sergeant Beecroft, who was our officer in charge, um, like a dad to me really, you know, it was Joe and Gary all the time, he came crawling in and he crawled beside me. We are in a very confined space. It was hot, dark and smelly, as you can imagine. And he whispered to me, he said, Gaz, the engineers said the bridge is going to collapse again down further. You have to get out now. You'll, you'll be killed if you stay here. Wow. And I said, Joe, I can't leave these people like this trapped and injured. I can't leave them. I said, Look, what I'll do is I'll get down lower between the girders and that way I'll be safe. He said, no, you won't. I'm telling you, you've got to get out. I said, I cannot leave injured people. I can't do that. And it's true, right through my career in the ambulance service and, and the police, even if I never left an injured or ill person, never left them. And I felt like you're abandoning, you know, abandoning and, uh, to their fate sort of thing. So anyway, he turned around, he whispered, he said, and it was now not Joe and Gary, it was Constable Raymond, I direct you to get out from under this bridge. I said, righto, Sergeant. And it's for a police officer to disobey, like the military, to disobey a reasonable order or direction from a senior officer is an offence and you could get sacked or in serious trouble. So then I reluctantly just backed out of there and I gave Debbie a little torch, a little 
and rescue squads, we always carry a pen torch. You know, of course, even during the day, we could be in a dark place, like under a house, in a ceiling, um, where people are trapped. We need a torch even during daylight hours. So I gave her the torch. I said, look, I've got to leave for a minute, but I'll be back. And I thought, I can't leave, but I had to. And that was one of the saddest moments is when I had to crawl backwards out of there, leaving those trapped people alone in that horror. And I just thought, wow, you know, this is just too much. And I was angry. I was grinding my teeth. And uh, when I got out, I was pacing up and down the railway tracks beside the bridge and the carriages. And finally, the engineers packed the bridge to make it safe. And the whistle went and we were told we could go back in. But I crawled through and I remember seeing the torch and I followed the, the little light source and finally reached Debbie again and a number of others that were trapped there as well. And uh, I said, I'm back. And she said, I knew you would be. And, you know, I, I think about that these days where isn't it interesting that Debbie said to me, even though I said I've got to leave, she said, um, I knew you would be back. She knew and trusted me to come back to, to get her and get her out of there. And I often think too, it's like a lot of people now get complacent about Jesus returning. Jesus said, I'm coming back. Now, he obviously, when he left, he ascended to be with the Father, but he couldn't stand to be separated from us. So he said, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. That's me. You know, that's God, the Holy Spirit to indwell within you. And so, and then he said, I am coming back. And I often think, do we have that same level of trust that Debbie did that I would come back? Are we saying, oh, I don't think you're ever coming back, Jesus. The world's a mess and uh, if it was me, I would have been back ages ago. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, no, I'll be back. Trust me, I'll be back. And he's just delaying, as we know, for others to find salvation through the gospel. And so it's wonderful that uh, we can wait and know he is coming back. Well, I got back to Debbie and um, it was interesting. She said to me, she said, oh, oh, and I said, what's wrong? She said, my tummy, my tummy, my tummy, it's hurting. And there was nothing trapping a tummy at that stage. She would sort of straightened her body out and the legs were still trapped. But And so I palpated a tummy and the medics know that her muscles of her abdomen were very hard. That's the what we call the six-pack, really hard and come across the abdomen. Now, that's a sign that the body's protecting some catastrophe in the, in the abdomen, a bleed, oh, okay. or it can be a bruising, can be air, yeah. can be anything that's collected in the abdomen. She said a very interesting thing then. I said, look, okay, just stay still and we'll... The doctors will have a look at that when we, when we get you to hospital. And she said an interesting thing. She said, uh, you know, she was still fading in and out of consciousness. She said, do you think I'll ever be able to get married and have a baby after this? I thought, wow, only ladies could ask that question, you know. That was on her mind. And when you get catastrophically injured like that, I guess a lot of things about your future run through your mind. Mm. And, um, you know, victims of entrapment often go through that, you know, the past, present and future in their cognitive processes, their thoughts. Anyway, I said, um, you know, just a good old throw-off line. Oh, only God knows, Deb. Uh, you know, God knows. Look, look, God knows. 
And it's true, isn't it? Often when we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but God does. So that's why I stay with God because he knows my future. And without him, you don't know your future really, although he still does. And so we finally get her out and off she goes to hospital urgently and she was in, had, oh, dozens and dozens of operations, lots of therapy and lots of things happening uh, with her, yeah. But again, uh, a little while later, it was a couple of years I think from memory, I got told to go down to a television show called Where Are They Now? Oh, yes. Peter Luck was the uh, compere at that time. And they brought me from the green room after a cuppa into the studio. The lights were on. People were standing with a, an ovation and Peter Luck said, Gary Raymond, one of the heroes of Granville. Uh, oh, wow. And they're all clapping and I'm saying, what's going on here? Anyway, through the light I saw a lady get up and walk towards me on a walking frame. And I recognised her immediately. It was Debbie. And she came and we cuddled and cried. and said, hey, going, look at you. You're looking beautiful. You're looking great. And you could see the scar of the tracheotomy just in a, you know, in the bottom part of her neck there where they'd inserted a breathing tube, as it were. And, uh, and she had a little bit of a speech impediment and uh, she was in the walking frame. And, and then she said, um, I heard a noise behind me. And I looked around. There's a lady with a baby. And handed the baby to me. And I thought, oh, hang on tight. Don't drop the baby on national television. <laughs> you know, so hang on tight. And I'm looking around. What's this all about? And Debbie looked me in the eye. She said, now, remember under the carriage, you know, she said, will I be able to get married and have a baby? And I said, oh, only God knows. And Debbie looked me straight in the eye with a big smile. She said, Gary, God knew. It's my husband, Steve, sitting over there. And that's my little daughter, Shelby. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's amazing and I want to reassure people that God knows all about you. He knows even before you were born about you and he knows what your life's going to be and he knows the choices he's going to give you and um, it's good to know that our life's in his hands, you know. So that was fabulous to see, that amazing miracle of um, coming out of a mess. Yeah, that's incredible. And um, when you're in those crisis situations, do you do you feel like God is influencing you in those moments? Yeah, look, definitely. Um, <clears throat> as a rescuer and a police officer, I always consider myself as that. That's a ministry, not a police career, a police job. It's a ministry, and I consider myself as a pastor or, or minister or Salvation Army officer, whatever you like, in a blue uniform carrying a gun, handcuffs, you know, capsicum spray and all the rest of it. And I knew that um, God would put me into crisis situations to glorify him and to minister, you know, fire the Holy Spirit's promptings to a people that were injured. And I was always aware, I'd get in the police car or the rescue truck, whatever I was doing, or in the detective's car in the morning or whatever shift, and I'd say, Lord, I want to thank you in anticipation for what you're going to do with me during the shift. And I just want to be obedient to your promptings and do your will and uh, and your purpose. So even though I was doing police work, I was always like a radar looking for the opportunities. And, uh, for example, if I went to a car crash and someone, I remember one time, 
uh, car was upside down and we arrived and I crawled in and the fellow was hanging upside down in his seatbelt, bleeding pretty badly. So I was um, controlling the hemorrhage with um, various things we do and equipment we use. And uh, as, as he was there, while I was controlling the, the bleeding, I was praying into his ear and just saying, you know, Lord, I, you're here. You know, you know what this man's going through at the moment. Help him to trust you now. Help him to know that you died for him, to forgive him his sin, and that you will know what you're going to do through this situation. Help him to put his focus on you and know your presence in Jesus' name. And I'd keep praying and then I'd get my rescue gear in and, um, you know, we put special spinal immobilisation gear, then we release them from the belt onto a special board and then get them out through the exit that we've cut and what have you. And all the time I'm praying into their hearts and lives. So prayer and rescue work go together. You know, you don't stop doing things often. And that's that's why the word says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean you babble all day. <laughs> what it means is that you live in prayer and in prayer situations and uh, little things like, well, not little things, but we I went to a house and many times where someone had died from natural causes. And I remember many times uh, arriving as an investigating police officer, sudden deaths, police have to be called, but then praying with the family. And one I remember vividly was a 14-year-old boy got drunk and he, uh, he suicided. He hung himself out of a tree oh, so in sad. a park after the party. And his girlfriend found, went looking for him and found him oh, and ran back to the party and they then called police and ambulance but it was too late. Now, being the uh, duty inspector, the duty officer, as we call, we called, I had to go and tell the parents. Yeah. So I knocked on the door and this uh, pretty big gentleman came to the door and he's, I said, look, I'm Chief Inspector Gary Raymond. I need to come in, please. And he looked, he said, this is about my son, isn't it? And I said, yes, sir, it is. May I come in? So I came in and his wife came out of the kitchen, uh, taking off a, an apron and throwing it down on the floor and said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the husband turned around and he said, he's dead, isn't he, Inspector? And I said, sir, I am so sorry, so regretful to tell you, yes, he is. And we still need to identify him, but we believe that it is your son. And until we get official identification from you, uh, I must caution you that we do just believe it, it's him. And he said to me, you know, after they got over the shock and, and crying, he said, and I quote, he said, I told that little bugger never to touch drugs. And I said, sir, he didn't die of a drug overdose. Don't tell me he bloody pinched a car or, or went around with idiots, did he? I said, no, sir, he, he didn't die in a car crash. Oh, No. Did you get the mongrel bastard who murdered him? I said, sir, he wasn't murdered. And he looked at me and said, well, what happened to him, Inspector? I said, sir, he's suicided. Well, there was silence. He was staring at me and he got into a rage and he jumped up. I had my police leather jacket on and he grabbed me and pulled me up off the lounge like he's, and I'm a big bloke, and he pulled me off the lounge and he shook me. 
And he said, Inspector, come here and tell me anything, but don't tell me that. And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I grabbed him and I pulled him in towards me and I cuddled him. And then I got my finger and beckoned his wife. I said, come up here, please. And she came in. I grabbed them and cuddled them and held them and then just started to pray. <clears throat> Pardon me. And as I prayed, I, I just never forget the tears of both this mum and dad running down my leather jacket, literally running down the leather on my jacket as I brought them before the throne of grace. In this hurt and in this pain, you know, the only thing I could do was to bring them, you know, before the Lord. And But that's funny, we say bring him before, bring them before the Lord. He's there anyway and knows exactly. Mm. Then we had to go down to the mortuary and identify his body. And then I prayed with them there again. And then coming back in the car to drop them home, relatives were coming over and friends and neighbours. There was a stack of people at the house. So in the lounge room with all these people, I again prayed with all these people before I left to continue, you know, the investigation. We had the detectives working on it as well and forensic services, of course. So that gives you an idea of what it's like to be a Christian police officer. It's... They're not separated, they're integrated. And many times, many, many times, you know, both offenders, witnesses of crime, victims of crime, relatives, my fellow police officers, I prayed with them, yeah. That's beautiful. Mm. And then I guess moving on to your detective work, you covered some pretty crazy cases. Yeah, probably the worst case that I worked on is... uh, the nurse Anita Cobby case mm. um, on the 2nd of February 1986. She was uh, been out with some friends. She caught a train to Blacktown. That someone had, now this is significant, someone smashed the public phone. She normally rang her dad, said, Dad, I'm at the station, come and pick me up. But she couldn't get through and, of course, she didn't have a mobile phone. And so she thought, oh, well, the phone's busted, I'll walk home. Nice summer's night in February 2nd, and uh, so as she was walking down the street, five brutal offenders abducted her, um, then took her to a paddock in Reen Road at Prospect, tortured her, um, sexually assaulted and raped her in every way, shape and form you can think of. And then finally, a fellow called John Travers, who had a very bad record of um, crime and sexual deviancy, he decided that so she wouldn't recognise them. He uh, jumped on her back and ripped her head back with the hair and cut her throat and murdered her in the paddock. And so um, just seeing the brutality of these men, uh, these five men, what they did, um, three of them were brothers, the Murphy brothers, and the youngest was a fellow called Michael Murdoch. But uh, Travis cut her throat and... Uh, it was a dreadful crime and uh, really set the whole community into a lockdown. Uh, while we were hunting them down, uh, there was a lot of investigation going on in the background. We G'd up some listening devices. We arrested Travers and Murdoch and um, held them on a stolen car. And then we worked through um, some other evidence gathering and finally got them all in. But I'll never forget a few things with that. Um, when we were looking for them, we hadn't arrested them. And 
the stress was so high on us detectives because we knew that they, well, they knew we were after them, the Murphy brothers. And we thought they're going to offend for sure. They know we're going to get them. They know they're going to jail. And what happens with some of those desperados, they can continue doing crime, um, go down, you know, go like a ship going down and you're going to do your best on it before you hit the bottom. These guys um, <clears throat> were brutal and so uh, I was in the office and I heard this bang, bang, bang. I thought, what's that? And I went into the uh, locker room and one of the detectives were punching the lockers in frustration and he looked around at me with anger and he said, Gas, we've missed them, we've missed them, we've missed them. And I said, mate, we'll get them. Come on, settle down, we'll get them. And I grabbed him and took him in for coffee. Such was the frustration. We felt the weight of the world. And uh, during that time I prayed, I just said, Lord, you know I hand everything over to you. Your word says cast all your cares upon him as he cares for you. And I said, I'm casting this on you. I'm throwing this into your care, this investigation. You know that we need to get these blokes in to protect the community. And uh, it was only the very next raid that um, we got them. Wow. Yeah, so we got them in and um, interviewed them. But the other thing, which is a Australia first, I think, in a lot of ways, and we were, we'd, they'd been to court and they were getting, being remanded um, in custody to jail. When we brought them out in the cars, out of the Blacktown Police Station, there was a lynch mob. They put a noose over the wall from the car park and they were going to, attack the cars, bash up the police, get them out and hang each one of them. We saw a modern-day lynch mob made up of hundreds of people, all ages, both genders, and one, I was holding back one dear elderly lady, she was enraged, and uh, she said to me, let me at him, let me at him, let me at him. I said, no, settle down, please, stop resisting, stop resisting, don't do this. And she said, you got a daughter? I said, no, I haven't. She said, I have. Let me hang him. Let me hang him. So there was even some of the criminals were in the crowd. I recognised some of our sort of recidivist offenders who were just out of jail or we hadn't caught yet and they were there wanting to hang them because they brutalised a nurse, you know, and it's a strange, very strange code that our criminals have got. It's all right to rape and pillage, but don't do it to a child or a baby. Don't do it to a nun or a Salvation Army officer or a nurse, you know, like that's how warped their sense of justice is. But anyway, that was a shock to see a genuine lynch mob and we got them out of there just by the skin of our teeth, I think, because we were caught by surprise. Um, I thought of a protest. I thought they're going to pray, but a lynch mob? That was a shock and so uh, that was a first for my entire police career and never saw it again since. Wow. And I'd be interested to know as well if you're willing to talk about how you dealt with such horrible things in your own self. Absolutely. Look, it's um, one of the keys is, as, as the, the word says, everything according to the scripture we read, according to the scripture, according to the scripture. Let me give you an example of um, understanding suffering 
and understanding bloodshed, you've got to know the book of Genesis. In early Genesis, we read about Adam and Eve disobeyed God and the whole of creation crashed. Sin entered the world and um, the corruption we're still seeing today. As you know, it's called the fall and we're still falling. We're the fallen. But praise God, he had a rescue plan in place, we know, through Jesus on the cross, free gift, taking our blame for us. But I, I was working um, a mission on the helicopter one time and we, came, we were coming back to base and a call came over that a semi-trailer had overturned on one of the sort of rural roads just outside of Sydney here and they believed the people were trapped in it. So um, we called on the air, we said, Polly 1, we're only five minutes from there, we'll go and have a look. So <clears throat> we saw the truck upside down, there was no one there except passers-by, no emergency services at that point. So we landed in a paddock and I grabbed my medical gear and jumped the fence with the other crewman I was with and uh, we we found a fellow upside down in the semi and he was saying, my son, where's my son? And I said, who was in the vehicle with you? He said, my son, where is he? And we couldn't find him and then suddenly I saw a, a shoe sticking out from under the tr- under the the roof oh, of the prime mover, yeah. Mm. So we we released the fellow carefully from his seatbelt and put him, he was then lying in the cabin, like on the roof, was upside down, and we frantically dug underneath the, the prime mover and we found him. And obviously even then he was, we could tell, he was what we call beyond resuscitation. Normally we would attempt a resus effort, even with road crash victims, but he was, um, he was beyond that. He was gone, you know. And so we went in and um, treated this guy and then rescue arrived and ambulance and medical and, and all the rest of it. And what had happened was it was during school holidays and this man who had his own truck uh, said to his wife, oh, I'll, I'll take our son for a run on, on the truck school holidays. Come with me and see what daddy does, you know, you loved riding with his daddy in the big truck. He stopped at a hotel and drank heavily with his mates, looked at his watch, thought, oh, no, I'm late with this load getting it into the docks. They'll be, you know, this particular docks warehouse would be closed and he rushed like mad to get there before the gates closed. Not the dock itself, there was a warehouse, sort of a staging point where they dropped all this stuff off. And, of course, going like mad towards, you know, the city rolled over. And his son didn't have his belt and was thrown out under the truck and lost his life. So we finished there, we got back in the helicopter and uh, we're heading back to base. And the fella in the back with me who works the winch and, you know, and I used to go down on the winch, but he, he looked around at me and he swore, really, really swore. He said, where was your... F God, when this kid was crushed under the truck, where was he? And I said, I just spontaneously responded. I said, oh, mate, God doesn't drive semi-trailers. I just want to pause there for a minute. And that's true. Like God gives us choices to do the right thing. The Holy Spirit says to everybody, don't break the traffic laws. 
Don't drive like that. Don't go through that red light. Don't use your texting when you're driving. Don't drink. Don't use drugs, you know. Um, don't, don't do dangerous behaviour like that. Don't do that. But we are disobey him and then, then when things go wrong, oh, where was God? You know, what was God doing? So when I said that to him, he got enraged and he didn't speak to me. He spoke to me operationally but not personally and so we landed, tidied up the chopper ready for the next mission, fueled it up and all the things we do and we went into base and we had tea, no talkies, didn't talk to me. Washed up, put the telly on and the pilot and co-pilot went down for a bit of a rest and we're sitting there watching TV, no talkie. About 9pm or so, he got up and he went over and he switched the telly off, like hit it, hit it to switch it off and it sort of shook. And he turned around and he said, tell me about this so-called God of yours. I said, well, mate, what do you want to know? Start at the beginning. So I started at Genesis and I said to him, you asked me before, mate, why or where was God when this kid was crashed? Let me tell you where suffering, death came in. And I told him about the fall of Adam and Eve and, and sin crept in and so on. And I said, so God gets the blame for all that when it's us who disobey him and make bad choices. I said, I said to him, I said, right through the Bible we're given a free will. Even though he's in charge and totally the governor and preserver of everything, within that he gives us a free will. That bloke used his free will to kill his son. And, uh, and then I went from there, we went through and got to John 3.16, you know, went through the law from, through the Old Testament. Then we went on to Revelation about talking about, you know, how he's coming back and the and new heavens and new earth and so on. And by this time, it was well after midnight and creeping towards early hours in the morning. And when we got to the end, he looked at me Tears were flowing down his cheeks and he said, Gaz, now I understand. He said, now I get it. And he said, please tell God I'm sorry. I said, you know what, mate, you can go directly to him. I said, you don't have to go through anybody. He's there waiting just for you to engage with him in prayer, which is talking to him and listening to him. And uh, so I said, I'm going to get your Bible and with that, again, he cried heavily and he said, thank you, God, for forgiving me, everything I've ever done. And he knelt in the helicopter base and started a relationship with Christ. And now he's a strong Christian cop. He's just retired recently. and But he always points back to that question, tell me about your God. Wow. And so that's, as a police officer, um, that's some of the ways in which, um, you know, I've been able to pray with people, given the gospel. God does the rest. I mean, we just give them, proclaim that wonderful gospel and the Holy Spirit quickens them and then uh, he saves them. Yeah. And the other thing I do is a lot of cops see a lot of bloodshed. Yeah. And I refer police officers often back to the bloodshed of Jesus you know, him spilling his blood to wash us clean. You know, the Lamb of God, he sacrificed spilling his blood and uh, 
to wash us clean and to make us righteous and right in God's sight. And, of course, cops relate to bloodshed and then paramedics, they can understand what bloodshed means. Mm. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then since you've retired, you are continuing on a lot of good work as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, it's um, <clears throat> I've been appointed chaplain to the police post-trauma support groups. That's their peer support groups, cop on cop, to, to help each other during tra- traumatic times and um, like before, during and after trauma in particular. And uh, that peer support is very important because um, cops have been through stuff and then they can then uh, support other cops who are going through it as well. And so we, we meet on a regular basis and just go through some of the things that we're going through and uh, myself and others facilitate that. And, and between meetings or between call, I get called out to go to police officers' homes. There might be family in conflict. Um, the officer's traumatised, doesn't want to talk about it. There's things develop and uh, some cops are motor mouths, we call them. They talk, 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 talk and vicariously traumatise their family. Yeah, right. Others just don't say a single thing and their families are saying, well, uh, you know, how come you're not sharing with us? You're withholding what you're doing at work. Aren't we worth you sharing? Mm-hmm. So you get these conflicts of communication skills as um, something I do. The other thing is too that often families, when you explain what critical incident stress is, what post-traumatic, like critical incident stress is at the scene itself, the stress that we, we suffer at the scene of the catastrophe, post-traumatic stress is afterwards and um, that's the stress you suffer in the aftermath. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is when it becomes embedded and the, the police officer or could be an ambulance or, or anybody, a fiery defence, become disordered. Their life, they don't get out of bed, they um, can't go out in the crowds, they get very angry, they don't sleep properly, they don't eat properly, they don't um, do anything, they don't socialise. Um, they're often traumatised by the system. Uh, sometimes insurance companies even put surveillance on them and watch them. And, uh, you know, and there was one case where the insurance investigator reported, we saw the police officer laughing with his children. So how could he be suffering post-traumatic stress disorder? They actually took photos of him laughing with his children. And so the insurance companies need to be a bit careful because they're putting extra trauma on these sufferers rather than being, yes, sure, they're insurance companies, but if they cooperated with us, then often these officers would be far quicker to recover instead of being traumatised by the you know these people and also sometimes too that um, inexperienced uh, psychiatrists psychologists or even mental health workers who don't understand what PTSD is can re-traumatize police officers by telling them things like oh come on you know if you don't like the heat get out of the kitchen or get back on the horse so each uh, each case has to be dealt with individually 
And as I might have mentioned before, the sensory stimuli, sight, sound, smells, touches, is very strong. Um, often they flash back. Like a memory is, I went to Hawaii a few months ago and I had a great time. A flashback is, oh, I went to the death of a child and I'll never forget the look on that child's face, so motionless and still and pale and, you know, that's a flashback and and. We can't say, oh, just forget it because memories are actually tattooed on your brain chemically and your brain's like a video camera, records everything and it stores it and then it flashes back onto the screen again causing often a re-traumatisation of the officer. So we deal with all that by letting them talk it through, giving them some tools to try and minimise the effects of trauma and so, uh, yeah, I do a lot of that. Also, do a lot of suicide prevention workshops. Um, well, three things really: um, suicide prevention and awareness. Because most people out there are totally unaware. If I said to people now, "How would you find a suicidal person?" I'd say, "Well, I'm not sure. Some are trained and some aren't." So, um, we need to upskill the community in finding those people probably in their own family. Secondly, I do workshops on suicide crisis negotiation. What do I do if someone is suicidal right in front of me now? And then the other workshop I do is what we call postvention, which is what are the issues with those left behind after a suicide? So since I've retired, I do a lot of that. Um, those workshops, like I'm just interested, do you think, mm. I don't know who they're for, but do you think everyone should be doing things like that? Look, absolutely. The mental health, uh, I guess, um, uh, sector is a little behind the medical health sector. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, God forbid, inverted commas, but if we had chest pain now, within minutes you'd have an intensive care ambulance out the front um, looking at you for a heart attack or other things, but... Uh, worth millions of dollars training they've got and then you might get a second paramedic unit turn up for you or a supervisor with equipment, you get this massive response if you've got a heart attack. But if you've got a broken heart, often you've got to wait six weeks to get into either a psychiatrist, psychologist, counsellor, chaplain, you know, and so we need to ramp up. Now, a lot of the community these days know how to do CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Even the little nippers on Bondi Beach know how to do that. Boy Scouts, little St John Ambulance Cadets and others. Uh, School teachers know how to do it, police officers. And so the community at large, a lot of people now know how to do CPR. How many of those know how to do emergency mental health first aid. So we need to ramp up the community to be just as skilled in emergency mental health first aid as in CPR. And we need quick responses to people who are in trouble emotionally, suicidal or they're either depressed, really down, or up there they're in an anxiety state, high as a kite, and not to mention drugs like ice, and other things. So we need a service that can respond on a triple zero call for someone with mental health issues. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm. 
Is there a key Bible verse or scripture that has really meant something significant in your life? Yeah, look, um, <clears throat> there's so many of them. I get excited with each one because um, it's interesting too. Um, people say, uh, oh, you know, or well, some people claim to hear God's voice in an audio way, but I don't know about that. But, I mean, I'm not discounting it. But we can actually hear his voice through his word. And I'll give an example. Um, when, I, when I'm in court, I give evidence, then they record it, and then they do a transcript of it. So after lunch, the defence lawyer will say, uh, Detective, before lunch you said the offender had a, a black T-shirt on with a yellow motive. Is that right? That's right. Well, yes, that's right, because in the transcript that's what you said before lunch. Now, so as they're reading the transcript of what I said, they're actually hearing what I said. God's Word, the Bible, it was given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to those men who wrote it. And it's amazing. So when you're reading it, you're actually, inverted commas, hearing God's voice. So all of the verses are really special to me. But, look, I know everyone knows it, but the thing that melts my heart is John 3.16. You know, that melts my heart because that's the centre of the gospel and everything else sort of rotates around that. And it's just so exciting because I never get sick of quoting or reading John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. And then there's the verses before and after that, of course. Mm. So I think that's my favourite and it runs around in my mind all the time and uh, and I get joy every time I see it, hear it, you know. And uh, and I think too that when, when with policing, uh, particularly talking to offenders, and when I complete the interview, I often say to them, now, look, the official interview is over, mate but I want to talk to you about something. Today, in you know, with that encounter with the guns, if we'd have shot you, where would you be, heaven or hell? Oh, I don't know, I think hell. Say, well, hey, hang on a minute, that's awful. That's a terrible place for eternity the Bible talks about. Shocking, never to be released. Not like jail or bail, you don't get bail. No one can bail you out and you can't escape. And I said, wouldn't you want to go to heaven? Yes. I said, but even if heaven didn't exist, let me tell you what Jesus did. And I said, heaven exists, but this is what he did. And I tell him about his sacrifice on the cross, his death, his, he was buried and rose, and, you know, according to scripture. And so I've led many, many, many through the Holy Spirit through me, criminals to Christ. Wow. They become good mates. They do their jail sentence, get out, come to church, grow, and they've been reading. You know, it's amazing. Prisoners probably read their Bible more than you and I put together. Yes, you know, they've so, got time. <laughs> yeah, they've got time to do it. And we often say, I haven't got time, I'm too busy. And, you know, that's the other thing too is that we read in the Word where God grieves, the Holy Spirit himself grieves. Yeah. And, yeah, it's over our sin, of course. You know, the sin's forgiven but we're still sinners, but it's covered, but he grieves. But the biggest thing I think he grieves about is that we say we're too busy, God, for you. 
Yeah. We're too busy to pray. We're too busy to really study and divide our word, the Bible. Uh, no, we're too busy to to spend time with you. Yeah. And, and he grieves. Do you know, because God misses us. God actually misses us because he doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he doesn't love us. He is love personified. And so that's what I would say to people listening and myself as well, that let's not get too busy. Uh, God wasn't too busy to put his own son to be nailed and belted on that cross to spill his blood for us and to forgive us. And I'll tell you an interesting thing too is uh, a few weeks ago I was with a police officer and... um, he said to me, he'd been, we'd spoken before about the gospel. And he said, Gaz, look, I just don't get it. I want to get it. I really want to get it, but I don't get it. And I said, well, let me give an example. I said, imagine that you're speeding, but you don't think you are. You're doing what you think's the speed limit. The highway patrol pull you over and say, so you're, you're exceeding the speed limit. No, I'm not. I'm doing my 80. I'm doing my 80. What's all this about? And he points well, she points to the sign, 50. Uh-oh. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. I'm in a hurry. I'm busy. Oh, you got me fair and square. Yep. Yep. I'm exceeding the speed limit. You've caught me. Give me the ticket. So the officer writes the ticket out and hands it to you. How would you go, I said to him, if before you go, that police officer, before you go, sir, give me that ticket back. What for? Well, just give it back to me. So the officer takes the ticket back off the offender and says, look, I'm worried about this penalty for you and I don't want you to pay the penalty because you won't, you know, your licence will be cancelled, you lose your points, you won't be able to take your kids to school or your your wife to work or or you to work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay that ticket for you. I'm actually going to pay this penalty. But, 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 sir, you caught me. I was the one who offended. You're the... You're the police officer and you're going to pay it? Yes. What? I don't believe that. That's too good to be true. And that's what grace is, by the way. We don't deserve that. But I said to him, what would you say if the cop then said, the points that you have lost, I'm going to give you my points back onto your licence so that you haven't got any loss? Not only that, when I get back to the station, I'm going to look up your record on the computer and I'm going to copy and cut all of your offences and paste them into my record. You can't do that. I did it. No, but that's what I want to do for you. I said, how would you feel about that cop? He said, I'd be stunned. I'd be so stunned at what he'd do. I said to him, that's what Jesus did. You sinned. He caught you fair and square. You're guilty. You're absolutely guilty. But guess what? He's paid the price. He's given back everything that you've lost and he's put all of your sin onto himself. He paid the price for you. You know what? That cop stared at me and he's smiling and started crying at the same time. I don't know if you've seen people smile and cry or laugh and cry at the same time. And he said, Gaz, I get it. (laughs) And he knelt in the police station and uh, surrendered to Jesus. So... Uh, so I think people, once they know the truth of the gospel, that what Jesus did 
on our behalf, then that undeserved favour, grace comes in. And we're actually in his sight now saved. And that's incredible. Yeah. And, um, and so that's what I'd say to people. Remember, the one who booked you, paying the penalty. Thank you for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and taken heaps away from it. Again, if the themes in this episode have raised any issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. We look forward to bringing you episode three in just two weeks. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.